Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. We are really glad to be able to open the Scripture together today, and we're going to be uh, looking at what may seem to be an unusual text for Easter Sunday, but since we're studying through Mark's Gospel and really in the New Testament right now, um, I thought we would take a look at Psalm 16 uh, today, which is actually one of the Psalms that is quoted several times in the New Testament, that it references the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 16 today, which was a prophecy that long before the events of Holy Week that we've just been observing and celebrating, uh, God had told us what was going to happen. And so we're going to look at Psalm 16 and the fact of eternal joy in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Before we uh, turn to the scripture, I'm going to pray for God to speak to us, and then we will dive in. Father, we are so grateful that you have made every provision for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we could not say alleluia enough to say praise you for all you have done. Lord, we ask now that you would come and by the same Holy Spirit who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, who now dwells in us, that he would enlighten the eyes of our heart that we may see and grasp all that you have accomplished in Jesus Christ for us, and that in seeing that, Lord, we would receive it with full and utter joy, and then go forth to spread the greatest of news. We ask that you would do all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I mean, again, we'll be looking at Psalm 16. It'll be up here on the screens, and uh, it's also in one of the booklets that you received, especially if you're a visitor and you're not familiar with that. We have a booklet that's got kind of some devotion and discussion questions you can look at later on in the week, but it also has the text. So Psalm 16, hear now the word of the eternal God. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Um, 
as I was thinking through this week, I was kind of reminded of uh, one of the great early church fathers, St. Augustine, and he wrote a book that was called The Confessions, which I've read three or four times now. Uh, it's a story of Augustine's amazing life, uh, quite honestly, and it had a massive influence in the history of Western civilization, Augustine in general did, the Confession specifically did. And in fact, even a few years ago, they did a, a poll in Christianity Today where they kind of did a March Madness thing, you know, and had people go down to the, the most influential books. And coming in at number two was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, but number one was the Confessions of St. Augustine. And he also left behind many other sermons and great works, but Confessions is unique because he was writing an autobiography, but he was really delving into it. It's really an extended prayer, and in it, he's praying through and thinking through his early life and then his conversion. And early on, Augustine has a, a famous part in his prayer that says, our hearts are restless. You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And then Augustine goes through a long uh, recounting of all the ways he tried to find rest. All the things he went through in his life, ultimately really seeking rest and joy. And actually in book 10 of Confessions, he wrote this, without exception, we all long for happiness. All agree that they want to be happy, they may all search for it in different ways, but all try their hardest to reach the same goal, that is joy. So Augustine's saying here, I spent my life searching for joy and I wasn't finding it until, in a very famous thing, he was in the depth of despair and he heard some kids singing a song and the song in Latin was tole lege, tole lege, take up and read, take up and read. And he had a Bible and he picked up and read and said that you spent, in the book of Romans, it said you spent enough time carousing in the night. Uh, you know, Christ is risen. Uh, put off the, the sins of the flesh and walk, be clothed and walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Augustine rose, a changed man, converted, and the rest is history, as they say. But Augustine makes this quote, and I want us to think through this a little bit today. Um, the idea, where is true lasting joy found? Because I believe Augustine is right. We're all seeking joy. We all like to have joy. But the question is, where is it found? And how is Easter even related to it? So let's dive into the text. Notice in Psalm 16, this psalm is a psalm that is about joy. Uh, in fact, the idea is mentioned six different times in Psalm 16. You can see there on the screen. In verse 3, he mentions uh, his delight. In verse 6, he says that the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. I have a delightful inheritance. Uh, he says in verse 9, his heart is glad and his tongue rejoices. And in verse 11, he says, you're going to fill me with joy with eternal pleasures at your right hand. So David is using a lot of different terms, but all conveying the same idea. David is saying that I've come to understand where joy is found. But he's also in this psalm, kind of like Augustine does in the Confessions, he's also going to talk about false paths that promise joy, but in fact end up in sorrow. And so it's important for us to understand 
where we can look wrongly, but then where we can find the true source of joy. And interestingly enough here, in the Old Testament, when some people want to say, well, they hadn't thought about resurrection, but notice David at the end says, what I'm really after is eternal pleasures that are at your right hand. And he speaks very clearly of the resurrection into an eternal joy. And again, this is important because I'm going to throw up another quote from Augustine that points out a very, very similar thing where where Augustine again says, every man whatsoever his condition desires to be happy. There is no man who does not desire this and each one desires it with such earnestness that he prefers it to all other things. Whoever in fact desires other things desires them for this end alone. And so Augustine here again is saying, look, all of us want to be happy. We may run about it in different ways, But whatever I'm doing, I'm doing because I believe at the end of the day, this is going to bring me joy. This is going to bring me to a place of rest and peace where I can say, oh, this is what I've been looking for. Whatever else it is I'm seeking, what I'm ultimately seeking is the joy that I think that thing is going to deliver to me. But again, the problem is, since we all may be in here, and there's a couple hundred of us here today, Um, if we uh, count out the ways, we may be looking in hundreds of different ways, but they don't all lead to joy. They do not all go there. And so again, you know, Augustine in the Confessions had said that we're doing it, we all want to be happy. We may search for it in different ways, but the question is, which of those will lead to joy? And David tells us that in Psalm 16. Notice in Psalm 16, verse 4, David actually tells us that there are other gods that promise joy, but what they actually give is sorrow. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. Here's the interesting thing that you and I uh, all recognize. Even in our uh, kind of post-Christian age that we're, we're, we're really entering into, what we find is human beings were created to worship. It's not a question of whether you and I are going to worship. It's only a question of what or who we're going to worship. We're going to give ourselves to something. Today, we oftentimes don't, you know, make formal little idols or gods as they did in the ancient world. But see, they had those gods because they believed that the different gods were going to give them different things. This was a god that would bring a good harvest, or this was a god who would bring, you know, blessings to our family, or this is a god who would protect us. At the end of it all, they're thinking that those gods are going to give them the things they need for joy. We may not have little gods that we set up in our house any longer, but do we still have gods Yes, we do. Uh, In our culture, we we can describe ourselves however we want, but we still seek joy through other gods. But the problem is they only lead to sorrow. Let me throw out a couple of gods that I think are very common in our culture, for example. One that comes to mind very clearly is money. I remember a few years ago, uh, Linda and I went out and we watched a movie called All the Money in the World. It was actually the last movie that Christopher Plummer made, I think, The, the Sound of Music uh, guy. He, he made it, and it's the story of J. Paul Getty. And in it, at the time, J. Paul Getty was the richest man in the world. And one of his grandchildren gets kidnapped in Italy. And J. Paul Getty, throughout the entire movie, and this is based on a true event, he's haggling over the ransom price. He's trying to talk them down. Now, 
they weren't asking for, you know, 10% of his fortune or anything else. The family around him was like, what are you doing? Just get the money and get your grandson back. Meanwhile, the grandson's being beaten and all these terrible things are happening. But J. Paul Getty was more attached to his wealth than he was even his own flesh and blood. And he was famously asked, they portrayed in the movie, he was asked one time, so you're the richest man in the world, but yet you are constantly striving to get more money. How much is enough? To which he's purported to have answered, just a little bit more. That was always his answer. But the reality that they've shown is, you know, we, we've got many studies that have shown in our day there's lotteries and people go out, you know, and they buy lottery tickets even though the odds against winning are so astronomical. But we'll go out and we'll do it because we think if I could just win that fortune, what's it going to make me? Happy. It's going to give me joy. But study after study has shown actually people report themselves as being less happy after they win the lottery than they were before because the money is simply a false god. It's not that money is, is bad in and of itself, but what does the Apostle Paul tell us? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he actually says in that same passage that people who are loving and craving money, they run after things and they pierce themselves through with many griefs. Kind of reflecting Psalm 16's language. But of course, why we really want money is ultimately it's about possessions. I mean, I don't want the little green square of cloth paper, right? What I want is what it can buy me the possessions. But they don't uh, deliver for us either. I was looking up the other day. Did you know that there, in our country right now, in America, there are over 50,000 personal storage facilities? This is not for companies. This is for individual people to keep their stuff in. Now, if you're wondering how many 50,000 is, that is more than all the Starbucks, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Pizza Huts, and Wendy's restaurants combined. Just to store our stuff that we bought to make myself happy that is now stored there until I open it one day to shove something else in and then I realize something's got to come out to put in a yard sale and sell as junk. Isn't that what we end up doing? And then it becomes somebody else's thing to put something else into a storage unit because we are convinced this will bring us joy. But at the end of the day, it doesn't. It's just collecting more dust and more space. For some people, it is sex. Obviously, in the 1960s, we had the sexual revolution. It has continued on to today. It promises freedom and unending pleasure. But the real results have actually been emotional heartbreak, skyrocketing disease, psychological confusion, broken relationships. We chased it as a God, and it's only brought sorrow. And then just the last one that comes to mind is power. Uh, Marxism actually claims that what everybody is really, really seeking is power. They would tell Augustine, no, it's not joy, it's actually power is what it's off. And and of course, what Marxism claimed is that if you embrace our system, there's going to come peace and harmony for everyone, except for the hundreds of millions of people who died 
as a result of everywhere Marxism was embraced. It actually was the most deadly force in the history of humanity. More people have died as a result of it than anything else that was brought forward. Because the quest for power actually ends up leading to endless conflict, and even when it's achieved, it takes a massive toll. And you can even look, I, I was going to put them up, but I, I didn't grab all the pictures. Have any of you ever done the exercise of looking at presidents, uh, a picture of them the day they take office, and then a picture when they leave office? Who would trade places with that guy, right? I mean, it's like, wow, you were in office for four years or eight years, and you aged more like four decades while you were in office. It's, it's the weight of power it ends up not bringing joy. I wonder how many of those guys partway through are like, I wish I had never done this, right? Most powerful office in the world, but that power ends up draining away life rather than giving life. They, sometimes the gods can even, let's be honest, sometimes I can get money, I can get possessions, I can have sexual things or power, I can have any of these things come, and for a season, they may even give joy. But let's just assume they even gave it for all of life. I had unending wealth, all the possessions I could want, whatever sexual desires I had were fulfilled, power beyond anyone's comprehension. What's still waiting at the end of life? Death. See, and we you know, we kid ourselves with, you know, little bumper stickers that say, he who dies with the most toys wins. But what's the reality? He who dies with the most toys still dies. He still dies. And now somebody's got to go clean out his storage facility <laughs> with, with all of his toys that he's put in there, right? That's what ends up happening. And this is because the underlying nature of all sin and sorrow is that we're forsaking God for false sources of meaning and joy. The problem is not that we're looking for joy. It's that we're looking for joy in the wrong place. So C.S. Lewis has a great quote in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. It's early in the sermon. And it's a long quote. I'm going to read it. It'll be up here on the screen. But, but listen to what Lewis had to say. Sin is not seeking joy and pleasure, but seeking it in the wrong place. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. And then listen to this amazing quote. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So Lewis his kind of version of confessions was called surprised by joy because he said since he was a little child he had been seeking joy and he had tried it in all these other places and then he finally was surprised when he awoke and realized I've been making mud pies in the slums because I didn't realize that something far greater was being offered to me and it was all free. 
And so that's what uh, is going on here in this psalm. The problem is not a desire for joy, nor is it even that the things that we may be offered are inherently bad. Rather, it's that we think too much of them and too little of God. And they can't bear the weight, and so they end up bringing sorrow rather than joy. So notice David goes on in the psalm, and he tells us, in fact, what the majority of the psalm is about is the true source of joy, which is God himself. It's not even the things that God gives, it's God himself. Now, he does note that he has great joy in the things that are given by God. He mentions two specific things here. Number one, he finds delight in God's people. In verse 3, he's kind of contrasting the people of God versus those who are chasing other gods. And he says, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. And I can tell you, though the, though the church can have problems, one of the greatest joys in my entire life since I became a believer at 16 is being part of the people of God is the joy of being with brothers and sisters. Even knowing that at times, as I've had the privilege to travel into other countries and you meet someone that is from a completely different culture, a different ethnicity, everything about them is different. We can barely speak to one another. But when we can communicate that we are both believers in Jesus, the joy that wells up to know that we are followers of the same Christ, that the same hope resides in us. And David points that out and says, look, I've got, I've got joy and delight light in just the people of God. Secondly, he points out in verses 5 to 6 that God gives us many gifts and provisions in this life. He says, Lord, you've assigned me my portion and my cup. You've made my lot secure. This is a way of saying God's gifts and his provisions and his blessing to us. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And so David here is recognizing and saying, look, I mean, you know, in the case of David, I was just hanging out with some smelly sheep on a hillside, and now I'm the king. How did this happen? God, you've been good to me. And so it's good and right for us to recognize that we find and we express joy in the good things God gives to us. And brothers and sisters, he has been very, very good. To, to most of us, let's be honest. And if you look at the history of the world, you and I live with a level of privilege and blessing that is unparalleled in human history. And these are all God's good gifts to us, and that's good. But notice, that's not where David's ultimate joy lies, nor is it where our joy should ultimately lie. The source of joy is God himself. In verses one and two, notice he says, keep me, O safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I could be king, but if I weren't with you, what does it mean? I could have the nicest palace in the world, but if I don't have you, it means nothing. He goes on in verse 8 and says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So David's letting us know, hey, it's good to enjoy God's gifts and to give thanks to him. It's good to acknowledge that they come from God and to say, Lord, we are grateful. But the source of true joy is God himself. He is the fountainhead from which every other blessing in this life flows. Every other joy we can find in this life is only an echo of the joy that is God himself. 
And it's this realization that when they understood this, Augustine stopped all of his searching. When he understood this, C.S. Lewis said, this is the joy that since I was a little kid, he had an experience when he was a kid, and he said, I had spent the rest of my life looking for that and longing for that, and then suddenly I realized it was God himself that I was longing for. What my soul really wanted was not these other experiences or these other things. It was really God himself. And the good news is, and this is where it really starts to link to Easter, that the joy we find in God himself is joy that is now and forever. Because every other thing, even the good things God gives to us, they're fleeting in this life. Only God himself is eternal. But notice what David tells us in verse 11 is, he says, you've made known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence. Again, it's God himself and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Because God himself is our joy. That joy is eternal. It's not a passing pleasure that turns to dust. And here's the reality. You and I, because we're made in the image of God, you were made not for passing joy, but for eternal joy. That is what you were created for. You were made in such a way that you should experience joy, not just for brief moments here and there, but everlasting and ever-growing joy. And nothing else will finally or fully satisfy. But notice where this is. It is in the presence of God. See, we we somehow almost can picture, and when you hear people talk about, I, I remember years ago we were, uh, Linda and I on our 30th anniversary, we, we went to Italy, and we were down in the catacombs, and we had a tour guide who was one of the worst tour guides in all of Italy for our tour of the catacombs. We, we were learning much more about her and her disappointment in her love life than we were about, I don't know, the Christians who had expressed their faith and lived and died for the faith there in the catacombs. But she was describing, she said, you know, what are you looking forward to most in heaven? And for her, it was being with Brad Pitt and some other dude. And then she made what for her was a mistake by looking around and latching her eyes on me and saying, and what do you look forward to in heaven? I thought, well, honey, you asked. So I said, uh, seeing God face to face you could have heard a pin drop in the catacombs at that moment. Then she quickly went to someone else who said, I want what he wants. <laughs> I was like, so much for Brad Pitt. He's gone. Uh, so it was hysterical. But see, that's what it is. We, we, we fasten on all these other things. What your soul wants and mine is to see God, to know him to be in his presence, and to know it will never end. That there will be ever-increasing capacity to behold and to know God. And with every increasing capacity is ever-increasing joy. And that's what we are promised. Even in heaven itself, I, I, look, I am looking forward to it. I am sure we will be able to fellowship with saints. Hopefully someday, I, I, and since we've got eternity, I'm sure I'll get to sit and say with Augustine and say, hey, I mentioned you on an Easter Sunday. But that's not going to be joy. 
What's going to be joy is being with the triune God. That, that he is inviting us in. And every other thing we experience in heaven, the food is going to be better than any food you've ever had here. The wine is going to be better than anything we've ever tasted here. Uh, all these other things, the fellowship is going to be here and there's going to be no sin, no problems. But all of that is just an echo and we're going to keep tracing back to God himself. And brothers and sisters, what has secured this for us is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's because that stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. That's what brings the eternal joy for us. And notice, David brings this up in the psalm. This is not something that Christians invented. We got to do something to try and, you know, save the story we had building about Jesus. No, David had already uh, prophesied this and written it about a thousand years before the time of Christ. Notice in verses 9 and 10, he says, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body is going to rest secure. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the grave. So notice, real joy has to overcome death or all is lost. And that's not because we just get out of death. It's because it's the way we are formed by God. You and I were formed for an eternal God, and so something in us rebels at the thought that we're going to go through it all, and at the end of it, death gets the last word. Something in us rises up and says, no, it cannot be this way. And we are right. It cannot be this way. And so David here says, look, you will not abandon me to the grave. But he goes on in the parallel phrase and says, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. And so there's David not being abandoned, but the Holy One who, as we're moving along, is the Messiah. That's from all the way back in the garden when God had promised that the seed of the woman was going to come. And we learn that it's through the son of David. All of this is pointing forward to the Messiah. And David says here that I'm not going to be abandoned in the grave because the Holy One is not going to be abandoned in the grave. But there's a difference. He's not even going to see decay. And lest we think, some want to try and read around, the New Testament is clear. This is about Jesus. In Acts uh, chapter 2, I'm going to put up a little passage. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. When Peter, who, who didn't have the privilege of going to seminary, just had to get it kind of downloaded, as it were, by the Holy Spirit there on the day of Pentecost, because it's amazing. We're going through Mark, right? How, how much does Peter understand the whole time Jesus is walking around? Like nothing, right? And then you see on the day of Pentecost when he gives this amazing sermon, he's got this amazing insight because suddenly it's all falling into place. And notice here in Acts chapter 2, he's speaking about Jesus. He says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Do those words sound familiar? It's Psalm 16. This was, this was 
Peter's text about the resurrection. So it wasn't so crazy when I picked it to be a text about the resurrection. That's what he says. But notice how he continues on. He says, brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb was here to this day. So see, here's the reality. David's body was still at rest and David's body had decayed. But God had promised David that the Holy One would not decay. And so notice in verse 30, he says, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. What changed everything for Peter and them was the resurrection. Reading John 20 the other day, when, when I, I mean, you, you remember at first, they don't even believe. It, we, we think of doubting Thomas, but how many of the apostles struggled to believe the resurrection? I mean, all of them. God, God had to send the Marys, the, the women down there to come back and say, no, it's really true. He's alive. Okay, he's alive. Did you hear the angel's question? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Didn't he already tell you what he was going to do? See, it had been prophesied years before. And it is good news because Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of our own resurrection. You can say with David, you know what? I have joy and here's why I have joy. You will not abandon me to the grave. Death will not have the last word. And how do I know? Because you did not abandon him to the grave. He was raised. He did not see, see decay, and he has blazed a path before me, and that path is into eternal joy. And so our joy is not only um, not passing, but rather is eternal because we are going to be raised from the dead into God's presence forever. And this is so outside of what we think because, friends, we all understand Whatever we're experiencing that makes us glad and happy and joyful in life, we all know it's coming to an end, right? No matter how good the vacation is, it's going to end, right? No matter how good today is, there's tomorrow. And at the end of it, we realize there is death, and it is awaiting us. But here is the good news. This undoes everything. Christ has started turning everything backwards because now that means when you and I die, it's just the doorway to life. Those who are left behind grieve, but we have entered into joy and it is ever-growing joy. And the only realization then is vacation never ends. Tomorrow is only going to be better than today. Let's get to tomorrow because it's, uh, as, as Lewis put it in Chronicles of Narnia, it's uh, higher up and farther in. It's just the more we penetrate, the greater it becomes. It is joy beyond anything we have ever thought we would have. And it is what we have longed for our entire lives, true, lasting joy. And so this is why we celebrate on Easter. Not because, wow, Good Friday was really tough and I'm ready to get up and celebrate, but because through the resurrection of Christ, we realize true joy. All other joys apart from him are fleeting. Death would wipe them all away, but he has conquered death. This is why Christians say he is risen 
He is risen. See, that is hope and joy. Right there, nothing can take away because he lives, we live forever too. Good Friday, he is willing to sacrifice for our joy. Easter Sunday, he secured the joy forever. Nothing can ever take it away. Now, this morning we're actually, applying the word is going to be extremely brief because I want us just to focus on the joy. I, I want to encourage you and I, First off, if you're here and you're not a believer, or you're listening and you're not a believer, don't, don't keep searching in other gods. Every other god will fail you. They, they, you find the person, you know, I just mentioned a few of them, but you find the richest person in the world, you find the person who's, uh, you know, given in most of the sexual revolution, the person who had the most possessions, the person with the most power, you're going to see they are not experiencing ultimate joy and nor will you. They are the wrong path. Christ offers us true hope, true joy. I urge you, look to him. And as a believer, I, I want to encourage you and remind you, this, this is a life lesson for us. Because when my joy starts fading, what is that telling me? Where am I putting my hope? I'm putting it in something else. Because as as grateful as I am for the church and for other believers, will other believers at times be less than a source of complete joy? Yes, they will. Okay? Unless you have the joy of being married to me. My wife would tell you that's unending joy. I'm glad she's not in this room. She's outside, but she's muttering right now. Right? We all know our marriages, our children, everything else falls short. And it's a sign to me that you know what? Because my joy is fading, where have I been putting my hope in the wrong place? Look it back. Fasten it on God. He will never disappoint. He will never fail. And the more we know him, the more we grow in our joy. And we, we begin that now, and it extends all the way into eternity. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table. And today, we're going to focus on this table as a table of joy. It is a feast of joy. And I want to remind you that obviously at the Lord's table we do focus on the death of Christ. But today, I, I had told a few people, I, it's an unusual thing. Let me, let me give you a little peek into what it's like to be a preacher. Trying to prepare for Good Friday and Easter Sunday at the same time is a little hard because they're a little bit different focus. <laughs> so I had to wait to prepare for communion until after we had finished Good Friday because I was like, I, I, I can't have Good Friday rolling around in my head <laughs> while we're trying to prepare for what we're doing this morning because this morning the real focus, yes, it's broken body and shed blood that Jesus has died for us, but it's an invitation to the feast of joy because as I'm going to read from Paul's words in just a moment. How long will we do this? Until he comes. Because it doesn't end with his broken body. It doesn't end in the tomb. It ends when he returns and we are with the Lord forever. So I want to encourage us this morning. This is a meal for all believers. If you are here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have to be a member of our congregation. We encourage you to participate along with us. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus, please talk to me afterwards. But 
This is a meal that states, I am a believer. My, my hope, my joy, my rest is found in Christ and Christ alone. If you believe that, let's come to the table this morning. If the Lord brings sin to mind, we confess our sin. But this morning, let's focus and fasten our attention on receiving the joy that God has for us. So brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, for as often as you eat this bread, and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, this past week, we have remembered the work of Jesus in our behalf. Lord, as a seed was planted and died so that new life might spring forth, so he died that we might be given life. And as a grain was crushed, to make this bread so he was crushed that we might be saved so father we do thank you today for his great sacrifice but we also thank you for the joy that is given to us in the death burial and resurrection of jesus brothers and sisters take and eat lord jesus you are the joy of loving hearts the fount of life and the light of men. And so, Lord, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to you again. We have tasted you the living bread, and we long to feast upon you still. And now we drink of you the fountainhead for our soul's thirst from you to be filled. Lord, you are our life. You are our hope. You are our eternal joy. And all we have is found in you. And Lord, all of it has been given to us through your blood that has sealed for us the eternal covenant, securing our joy now and forever. Lord, we thank you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. And I encourage you, I'm going to be uh, crying out, cry out with me for the, the Lord by His Holy Spirit. The, what a privilege. The mighty Holy Spirit of God lives in you and me. This is the effect of what the Lord has done for us on Easter. Holy Spirit, you are the mighty Spirit of God. And you dwell in us. So Lord, as Paul prayed, so we pray now that you would reveal to us the incomparably great power of God in us who believe. The same power that raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. The same power by which he ascended into heaven to appear before the Father. The same power by which he is seated and he rules all things even now. Lord, as your people, today we are filled with joy. 
For we know that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus is the first fruits. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And Lord, we know by the word of God that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he will give life to our mortal bodies, freeing us from sin and the curse now and freeing us from death itself on resurrection day. So Lord, we ask that you would send us forth now full of your blessing, overflowing with joy to live in the power of the resurrection and to spread the blessings of God everywhere we go. Lord, fill us so that we will live as resurrection people this week. Lord, we ask all of this in the name of our Lord Jesus, the risen living, exalted Lord of all. And God's people say, amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he himself equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go forth filled with the joy and blessings of Christ's resurrection and be a blessing, for he is risen. Amen. Happy Easter. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.